Right. Good afternoon. Uh, sorry, I'm a couple of minutes late. I didn't realise. Uh, I uh, this is AFS two double three, the final lecture. Um, and uh, today I want to say something about cinema and film, but a few more remarks about sacrifice before I conclude the unit. Um, just looking at this slide and wondering what the hell has happened to it. I hope that isn't the case with everything. No, it's just that last. Okay. Fingers crossed. Um, and uh, we are recording, I think. Yes. Okay. Um, I want to make a few um just quick announcements, a little bit of feedback on the um, on the essay, uh, which if you submitted your essay uh, on time, uh, which was the 2nd of May, all of those essays have been marked and returned. Uh, and a number of the submissions that were after the 2nd of May um, have also been marked and returned uh, and I'm currently going through the process of finishing the marking of those ones that were submitted after the 2nd of May. Now some of those essays, I just want to make a note, some of those essays were submitted without any extension requests, without any contact with me. I have made a note of that. Uh, and if I see anything like that again, um, the penalties will be deacon-like. Um, and uh, then, okay, after I do that, uh, a bit of feedback, general feedback, I want to stress on the uh, on the essays, not specific feedback. For the specific feedback, go to your, your specific essay. And then I want to finish up and say something about sacrifice as bricolage and then finally make the concluding point about this unit, which is the relationship between myth and ritual. Uh, and then I want to say something about those areas of this unit that um, just for reasons of space, um, we haven't been able to um, explore. Um, not because they don't matter, um, but simply within the structure of an 11-week trimester, there's only so much that one can do. Okay. So just quickly, just take note that the second to last class exercise is currently open and finishes this Friday. And at that point, the final class exercise, number 10, begins. That class exercise number 10 is based on this week's reading and this week's reading is The Politics of Virtuality, an article by me. Okay, please take note and look at the discussion questions ahead of the seminar discussions. That's what the quiz is on. Okay. There's also a final assessment task to be done, and that is the journal. And it will be the case that in the seminars this week, the final seminars for those dedicated few who are regular participants, for whom I'm tremendously grateful. Um, and as for the people whom I never see, well, bully for you. Um, but we will be workshopping in um, in the journal uh, in the final seminars our journals. The general advice I give to people is the same general advice that I would give for the essay. Please keep your sentences simple. Please remember the full stop is your friend. Make a plan. Read your work back to yourself aloud. Have somebody else, a disinterested person, an outsider, have them listen to it if you want to read it out to them or have them read it. Um, 
I think one of the common criticisms that I make, not of everybody, I stress in, in the essays, is asking people to to read their sentence aloud. Now, I say read it aloud because I think when you read something aloud, uh, all of the issues about your word choice, your grammar, um, particularly your grammar and the use of run-on sentences, losing track of what the subject of the sentence is and so on, it all becomes apparent when you read it aloud. And I'll come back to that point when I talk about the relationship between the creator of a work of art uh, and the work of art and how the artist um, can become an audience to their own work. And oftentimes we need to do that with our own writing. Uh, when it comes to the journal, I have specified that I want you to describe something. And I have suggested that this could be anything. I want you then to link that to at least one of the final readings concerning the nature of ritual. And ask yourself whether that activity is indeed a ritual activity. Now, some of you are going to say, oh, I better study a ritual. You can study catching a bus. It doesn't matter. Make it something that is relevant and available to you. The question is, how can you describe it? And then, in the process, determine whether it is or it is not a ritual by relating it to the, the literature. Now, I've said one article from the set of weekly readings. Obviously, if you can relate it to more than one article, you've indicated to your marker that you've been paying attention to the unit over the course of the trimester. So clearly, you'll get more marks if you demonstrate how much work you've done for the unit. Think of that one article, therefore, as the baseline, here's how to pass. How to do better than pass obviously requires you to do more than that. Demonstrate that you've been thinking and by thinking, joining the dots. Now, joining the dots might require you to talk about more than one of those articles. So don't come back at me if you only talk about one article and say, but the thing said, talk about one article. Yes, that's how you pass. Show us how much work you've done for the unit and you will be rewarded. It also follows from that that if you can weave your discussion whereby you both describe the, the thing that you are describing and you relate it to the literature that you are reading, if you weave that discussion into a coherent singular piece, then you are demonstrating far more thought than if you were simply to sit down and say, par A, description. I went to the bus stop. I got on the bus. Part B, ritual. Victor Turner says rituals have three stages. And if you keep those two things completely separate, then you fail to weave it together. And in doing that, you've met the criteria for passing. But you're not necessarily meeting the criteria for doing well. Okay, so... And I think everybody's happy with the idea that... People who've done the work in a unit across an entire trimester deserve to do better than people who've been paying very little attention to the unit across the trimester. My units, are, they're not hard to pass, but they're harder to do well in. Okay, now my general feedback on the essay. I did specify very, very clearly that I didn't want 
too much retelling the plot of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Now, for anyone who did that, and a few of you did, for anyone who did that, and then, and then the hominem picked up the bone and then he threw it into the air and then the bone span around and around and around and around. Have to pause and think, has my marker seen this film before? And if the marker's the unit chair, hmm, how many times has he seen it before? Do I need to tell him what happens? I think he knows. Take a leaf out of Capfer's book, 2001 and Counting. It doesn't go on and on and on retelling the story. It assumes you know it. Um, and people who forgot that and wasted time in the essay, you know, retelling the story uh, of the film, were generally covering covering up the fact that they that they hadn't done the other work which is associated with the with the task. Um, and that was do the reading and think about it. It also followed that if you'd followed those instructions you wouldn't have gone looking at something like Arthur C. Clarke's novel. Uh, of this film or any subsequent novel that Arthur C. Clarke wrote because you would have picked up the point that Clarke and the film are uh, somewhat at arm's length from each other. This is Stanley Kubrick's film. I just then would point out that people who made those mistakes kind of ignored, well, didn't kind of, they did. They mostly uh, ignored the instructions that I gave with the questions. I want to stress, though, when I say that, you know, actually, most of you did follow the instructions and most of you did not do what I'm describing here. And I can just say to you people, thank you. For that thank you very much it was indeed um, as much as marking essays can ever be an enjoyable uh, experience it is best known as the students revenge um, and I don't know any retired academic who has any desire to ever mark another essay ever 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 again and as so as much as it's tedious to just read so many of the same thing. Um, nevertheless, it was a joy to see how the ideas um, that we'd been discussing concerning mythology uh, and heroic mythology and the relationship between mythology and philosophy and how these related to a film like 2001, it was a joy to see so many of you getting the point. And so thank you for that. Uh, for anyone who didn't um, and didn't follow the instructions, I just take a note for doing the student evaluation on this unit. And sorry, and I meant to be going rah, rah, please everyone do the student evaluation on the units all online, blah, blah, blah. And honestly, I always appreciate the, the feedback. Um, that I get from the student evaluations. But please understand that for me, the best student feedback um, on a unit is not the quality control crap that um, how the university uh, implements, it's actually the work that you do. That's the best feedback that ever is, that any student can give on a unit is is indeed in the form of the essay and the journal as well as the seminars and their participation and so on. Um, now some people may well decide that they still have their right of customer uh, satisfaction uh, and jolly good go for it. Um, when you do make that customer satisfaction statement though, can you please ask yourself how much of the unit 
um, how much of your attention um, did you give to the unit? Um, and if you say, oh, well, there wasn't enough information about assessment, well, then ask yourself again, well, yeah, okay, did I ever go to a seminar? Did I ever post a question on the discussion boards about anything? Did I ever get, you know, <laughs> did I ever contact the unit chair? Uh, so take all of that in, in on board uh, when you do the uh, the uh, neoliberal um, auditing. Now I want to come back to uh, after all that stuff. I want to come back to the question of bricolage. Now bricolage, you'll recall, was a term that was coined by Claude Lévi-Strauss when he was describing mythical thought as an aspect of human thought. And he referred to it as intellectual bricolage. Now, the term bricolage he took from uh, the category of person that one, that one finds, found in French society, which was a kind of a, um, an artisan who was not skilled. He wasn't or she wasn't a trained artisan, uh, but rather uh, a person who would come along and do odd jobs and fix things um, and in the process uh, wouldn't follow the rules um, of engineering or following the plan or replacing a broken part with its exact equivalent. Uh, but rather they would they would fudge things. They would use what was available. Um, they would think outside the box. Now for Lévi-Strauss, uh, mythical thought as intellectual bricolage was a process of what he calls uh, in his book La Pensée Sauvage, uh, a process of detotalizing and retotalizing a finite set of elements which he called mythemes. Um, in his later work, when he shifted away from linguistic um, analogies to the content of myth, and he shifted away from uh, linguistic um, analogies to musical ones, he talked in terms of musical chords, musical motifs. Um, and some people, you know, kind of lost it with him at that point because suddenly a mythical element like, you know, Cadmos kills the dragon um, no longer has any kind of linguistic content. Rather, it's just a musical notation um, and in a musical chord. And it's like, well, hang on, how can a musical chord have meaning when 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 I had Cadmos kills the dragon, you know, it was a, it was a it was there was a plot, there was a character, there was a dude called Cadmos, and there was a dude called the dragon, um, and now you're just giving me what an E E flat, um, where the meaning has gone totally, it's disappeared entirely, and for Levi Strauss, the idea was no 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 don't don't. Don't throw out the meaning. These stories always have meanings and we always love a ripping yarn of dragons and this and that. But look instead at how these things are put together. And what we can see in how these things are constructed, what we can see in how these things are constructed is a certain pattern of practice which creates stories as myths. And it's not necessarily that they have to have dragons or somebody called Cadmos um, or some dude with the head of an elephant in order to be a myth. They have to have a certain kind of structure, a structural arrangement that renders them into this mythical structure, which is that they have to play out their little mythemes in the manner of musical notes and musical improvisations. And so that we don't necessarily have to go looking always for a dragon 
Instead, we have to find a structure. And if we can find the structure, then we can insert the dragons. And then we can think about dragons and machines and so on and so forth. And so he was trying to empty the content of myth. By emptying the content of myth, he was trying to push us away from a priori assumptions that we already know what the meaning is. Now, this is a really important point, and it's the basis of the critique that I made in this unit of certain psychoanalytic positions, where the certain psychoanalytic positions always commence with some idea of the meaning of the category or element. If there's a dragon, it means the monster of the unconscious. You're already giving it a meaning. You're already saying, oh, and I know what it's all about. Why? Well, it's because it's just telling the same story, which is my story, my hero story, and how I triumph over monsters. And this is all about me and my monsters. blah de blah de blah Levi-Strauss is trying to decenter that kind of narcissism or narcissistic approaches to myths whereby you run around the world and you keep discovering yourself and you keep saying, my, aren't I a clever fella? I keep finding myself in the world. Anthropologists balk at that. They balk at its basic conceit. That's not to say there are no monsters. It's not to say there are no heroes. It's not to say there is no unconscious. But don't jump to the conclusions that you know what the meaning is before you get there. Now, critically, that process of detotalizing and retotalizing, of taking things apart and putting them back together, is also evident in ritual practice. And the argument that I made when I shifted from myth to ritual, having ended at that point of Levi-Strauss and the bricoleur, was to say, you know, ritual is a form of practical bricolage because ritual also engages in an activity of taking things apart and putting them back together again. Indeed, ritual is closer to the actual figure of the bricoleur because ritual is a form of practice that's actually trying to do something. It's trying to fix that car or mend that broken pipe or broken window frame or whatever it is that the bricoleur is fixing. Rituals are often times exactly, not story time, but a form of practical action. I'm sick. I need a healing ritual to get better. I'm a child. I need an initiation ritual to become an adult. I'm unmarried. I need a wedding ritual to link me to another person and link my family to that person's family in a new social unit. I'm a commoner and I've just been made into the king. I need a ritual to crown me and turn me into that person, the king. And so we can see that there's all manner of ritual activities in the world which are like fixing a car or fixing the tire, the flat tire on a car or making the dinner, preparing a meal and sharing that meal. It has that element of practical action that mythical um, storytelling doesn't necessarily have. Mythical storytelling can be story time and seemingly from uh, ritual practice. Rituals can thus appear to be more functional than, than mythical thought. However, let's not jump to conclusions about ritual just because ritual is a form of technology. It is a technical practice. 
about fixing, healing, purifying, initiating, linking, joining, legitimating. It's doing all of those things. But let's step back from that and take a lesson from Levi-Strauss and take a lesson from the bricoleur and say, yeah, but what's really interesting is in the structure of its practice. The structure of its practice is that it detotalizes and retotalizes. It take things, takes things apart and puts them back together again. Whether we're talking about taking a young person apart and putting them back together as an adult or taking a sick person apart and putting them back together as a healthy person. We are looking at a process of what I call destruction. That is to say, deconstruction, unpacking, dismantling, disaggregating. Now, the paradigmatic form of that practice what you know encapsulates that logic of disaggregation and reaggregation is sacrifice because in sacrificial practices one finds exactly that activity going on now that's not to say then that every ritual is a sacrifice it doesn't require necessarily something being put to death or offered up to a god and then consumed by others. It has the same logic, which is the disaggregating logic. And I would argue then, instead of saying, oh, all rituals are forms of sacrifice, I would say, well, all rituals are forms of practical bricolage. And that would be the argument that I would make. And I would also make the case that indeed sacrifice is par excellence a form of bricolage. Within those terms, there's an interesting phenomenon that we live with. And indeed, we just went through it when we looked at 2001, A Space Odyssey. And that is the nature of film. Now, when you stop and think about film, the movies, motion pictures, and these terms give it away. Because in a film, what you have is a series of images which are joined together by the use of a technology that records those images and places them in relation to each other. Now, if you have a look at this slide here, in the top right corner, you can see in a kind of a, I don't know, a paley pink, browny sort of a colour, you can see a, a, a design and that you can say, oh, what's that? It's an image of film where each of those rectangular boxes is indeed a space for a picture. And then along the sides, on both sides, you can see the, what they call the sprocket holes. And they fit into the little turning wheel cog that, wrote, that runs that length of film in front of a... Uh, of a light and that projects light through that image which is then uh, pushed into a lens and projected onto a screen and we see the film. Now that's what film is. Okay, now you think, oh, okay, I was talking the bloody obvious here. True, but just stop and think about it for a second. When you have these multiple photographs being passed in front of a light projector. And many of you may have played with this uh, with little notepads when you were small or not. It's good fun just to, to learn the basics of animation. You know, you draw a little figure on a notepad and then you, you draw and then on the next page you draw it again, but you move the legs so ever so slightly. And then on the next one you move it again. And then on the next one you move it again. And then you pack the whole thing down and then you 
flick through it with your thumb and it just quickly pops down and it becomes animated. Okay, so it looks like the leg is moving. Okay, that's the art of animation. Animation is also the art of the movie. It's the, taking a picture, but then running them in such a way that our eyes deceive us. It looks like it's really happening. So that when you're watching a film, you are in that space. It, you know, you are projected into that space of the image. Now, this is all done because your eyes are not fast enough to be able to pick up the difference so that you don't see this as a series of flashing pictures. They all run together and create a continuous movement. And then you throw in a little soundtrack wire down the side that records the sound and you've got talking pictures. And as we have talking pictures, suddenly we're in the world of the film. And when we're in the world of the film, we are then sitting in a cinema and we're all looking at a wall. Now, the last, you know, some of you may remember going to the movies <laughs> a long time ago before the shutdown. You know, you never think of it as, oh, yeah, we all went into a room and we stared at the wall for an hour and a half. Uh, but that's what you're doing. You're all going and looking at a wall for an hour and a half. But this is an hour and a half which can make you cry, can make you frightened, can make you this, can make you that, and so on and so forth, can make you eat popcorn even. Um, these are all tricks of the eye that create for us an amazing sort of alternate world. Prior to, prior to uh, the introduction of film, and when we stop and think about it, you know, the movies, they've only been around for a relatively short period of time. Prior to that, we did have photographs. We also had artwork. And one of the most interesting forms of that artwork is what is known in French as trompe l'oeil. Uh, trompe l'oeil, trick of the eye um, artwork. And that picture at the bottom there is an example of trompe l'oeil. It's a, it's a street painting that, look, that makes that road there, which is a flat surface, but it makes it look like a waterfall. Now, if you can imagine you're in the, where the perspective that you're in looking at that picture. Now, imagine you were standing there and you look at that picture and you can see that there are three people on that street who are lying there. Um, on, they're lying on the ground and you realise that you could walk up to them. But it looks like they're coming down the river and they're about to go over the edge of a waterfall. It's a trick of the eye. Um, in a similar way, tricks of the eye, one of the other things that we can create is what's called dioramas. In dioramas, we create miniature versions of, uh, of the world. And this enables us to think about the world uh, through these miniature versions. And if you go to, for example, the Australian War Museum, you'll see dioramas which try to recreate the conditions of trench warfare in the First World War, but in a small model. Now, you can also remember that at the very beginning of this unit, I talked about giant lobsters and giant pineapples, uh, mainly as a critique about the nature of mythical origins, um, but also pointing us in the direction of these phantasmagorical things, whereby we, we do stuff like we create a gigantic mango and we make it into a statue. And you look at that and you say, what on earth are human beings doing when they create these extraordinary representations of their world? Uh, they're placing themselves in relation to the world, but they're also placing themselves in a creative relation to the world. That's what's so interesting. That creative relationship to the world, which informs human artistic endeavour. I mean, look what these people have done, painting this road in this way. It's fantastic, isn't it? 
you know, and the way in which they're playing with the world, the way in which they're playing with form in order to create a certain kind of experience. In the case of the Australian War Museum, when it started and these dioramas were made, I mean, it's very interesting, fantastic history, actually, because they were basically made by returned soldiers. And what the returned soldiers were trying to do was create something that the folks back home, the people who hadn't been there at all, could understand so that they could get some sense of what it was like. Now, for those people that are mostly returned soldiers who, who made these things, you can look at it and say, wow, talk about therapy. You know, so that these people were physically engaging in an act of reliving their experience by trying to capture a sense of that experience whereby they could also hopefully recapture themselves. Um, a self that had oftentimes gone missing from precisely that experience because of just how bloody traumatic the whole thing had been. And so artwork like this and the creation of these phantasmagoria, whether we're talking trompe l'oeil or dioramas or films or so on, enables the human to engage in a certain kind of imaginary relationship to the world imaginary not in the sense of being unreal but imaginary in the sense of drawing one's attention to the image whereby the human imagination is engaged and so between so to speak the look and the thing seen sits the imaginary as that which is both in the thing seen calling out, look over here, look over here, and what's in the mind of the imaginer, the imagination, the person who is looking, and they bring to that look the, 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 the capacity of our brain, of our brain to perceive and to think and to remember. And when we think about the nature of these uh, phantasmagoria then we begin to recognize that in ritual we are seeing the acute manipulation of indeed the imaginary and that film is doing the same thing in the case of film the critical element is the image how the image creates uh, the sense of the imaginary, how it captures the look and draws the look to the thing seen. I mean, take this image from 2001, A Space Policy, at the end of the film, for example. You're looking, you're inside the pod. You're looking out through the window of the pod. You're looking out and you're now in the darkness and you're looking into this light space and you're looking at yourself. So Dave is now simultaneously inside and outside the pod. And he's now in a world which is completely bizarre. It is on the one hand a kind of classical living room parlour from centuries ago and then it's completely lit from its floor by this white fluorescent lit floor and so it's simultaneously modernity and tradition and he's simultaneously inside and outside and this raises then the question of Who's looking at what in that scheme of things? And you realise then that you're caught up in an amazing sort of mirror image that this is what the film is playing, playing with. But in the very act of doing that, 
The image itself generates its own temporality, its own orientation to space and time. Now, for Mikhail Dufresne, in one of my favourite books of all time, The Phenomenology of Aesthetic Experience, uh, which is, I think, one of the books you should read before you die, uh, and you think, golly, <laughs> sounds like a load of fun, but it's brilliant. Um, he makes the distinction between uh, film and theatre, and he says it's a mistake always to think that film is just a form of theatre. Because in film, you have the image. And in the image, you have the symbolic. Experience that you're not going to the theatre when, uh, when you go and see a film. As much as films were first shown in theatres, um, and they took on all of the trappings of the theatre, they were always doing something else because they were also playing with something that theatre couldn't do and that was the, the, the so to speak, trompe l'oeil of the image. And this is why we associate films with their directors rather than simply their actors uh, or their scriptwriters, you know. Who wrote the script of 2001 A Space Odyssey? Mm, don't really know. Well, it was Arthur Clarke and, and Stanley Kubrick. But who gets the credit? It, this is Stanley Kubrick's film, The Director. And it's a critical issue about film. The director is the director because the director directs our attention to the image. That's what they're, that's what they're doing. And this is the nature of film certain type of activity. As such, film uh, follows that same take it apart, put it back together uh, logic of ritual practice. Ritual in that sense is much closer to film than to theatre. It places us in a particular relationship to the world uh, in ways that theatre does, but film does better. And film is one of the main areas of ritual practice that we find in the world today. It isn't the only one, but it's one of the big ones. It's one of the main areas of indeed ritual practice uh, and the kinds of worlds that we create for ourselves. It follows from this that rituals don't need temples in order to, to take place. But they'll oftentimes use temples and they'll use architecture and they'll use spaces because what they do is create certain types of space and sense of space uh, as ritual practices. And this is particularly evident in the kinds of monuments that human beings build. The monuments that, human, that humans make, like the pyramids, like the Arc de Triomphe, and like the MCG, these are monuments that stand in space and they create particular orientations to space and to time. That when you look at something like a pyramid, and we all marvel at these pyramids, we marvel at the engineering, la di da di da and all of that, and we also look at them and think, what kind of bloody idiot would build something like that? I mean, talk about useful. About as useful as an Arc de Triomphe or about as useful as an MCG, about as useful as a statue at the MCG, as we have a statue of a cricketer there. Um, what are we doing? We're creating objects that stand in space and time and become monumental because they orient everything around them. They engage precisely in those actions of detotalizing and retotalizing 
us in relation to the world. So that when I look at a pyramid like I'm looking at here, I see the union of heaven and earth, of sky and earth. I, and I see that union, uh, which is critical to understanding the nature of the ancient Egyptian kings and their relationship of life and death. When I look at an Arc de Triomphe, I'm looking at a fundamental marker that creates a sense of space and time. And even when I'm looking at an MCG, or here, notice, I'm looking at a diorama of an MCG. Not the actual MCG, but a model of the MCG. Where do you see it? Well, you go to the MCG and you can go into a special room at the MCG and see a, a model of the MCG. I mean, how good is that? How silly. As Dufresne says, monuments stand in space rather than face it. And it's fascinating that when we look at the history of cinema, uh, so compelling was the world that cinema opened up to human beings was that they immediately started building the most incredible theatres. If you look at theatre architecture, is an absolute knockout what people were doing building architectures for the new phenomenon called the movies. And it was the, the architecture of cinema that sort of said, my God, look at this amazing phantasmagorical thing that we've invented. And this amazing phantasmagorical thing that we've invented, uh, you know, is unparalleled. And so we tried to make sense of it with, with the architecture that we built. Okay. That's my last remarks about ritual, cinema and sacrifice. Now I want to uh, basically give you in one unit, in one slide, the unit as a whole. This was a unit about myth and ritual. Okay? When we looked at myth, we looked at the relationship between chaos and cosmos. We identified the nature of mythical time, that mythical time works on its own time register. Once upon a time, in that time, in the beginning. The mythical thought starts always with a sense of origins. It tries to imagine origins. And this, is a, and this is a fundamental feature of the human imagination, to try to imagine when something began. It's a confrontation with the world in all of its difference and within those terms, an attempt to say, you know, once upon a time, this all came from the same source. A cosmic egg. A big bang. A darkness swathed in darkness. A primordial moment that no one has ever, ever known or seen, but we can all imagine, because we can all imagine origins. The fact that we can imagine origins is at the heart of our capacity to think mythically. And that these origins we likened to the Greek term chaos. That chaos was a world that was full of possibility. Anything goes. Anything could happen. And it was that sense of possibility that we identified as virtual as not quite now, but not virtual in the sense of not quite real, but virtual in the sense of full of potential. Now we then shifted focus and we talked about ritual. And then we talked about its rhythm. Oh golly, it's time referent. And then we talked about the nature of its process. Then we talked about the nature of its content, how it uses symbols and how it makes one thing stand for something else. And that these symbols might be complex symbols or simple symbols according to their, their content. We recognise too that ritual works on its own time frame. And in particular, we looked at the way that ritual can suspend time. 
suspend the normal process of existence and create ritual time, its own rhythm, its own repetition, and so on. And that this time, this separate time, we refer to as liminal, from the term for threshold. But that sense of the liminal, we likened to the virtual. And that sense then of the liminal, we likened to the chaotic. And therein we said, this is what these two things have in common. This is the relationship between myth and ritual. And that is their sense of virtuality. That's the key to both myth and ritual. It's not that ritual is a performance of myth or myth is a story version of a ritual. It's not that. They're both explorations in the virtual, in the nature of the human virtual worlds. That's what they, that's what they are able to achieve. And one of them is very much closely related to the other. One of them might be a story and the other one might be a practical action, but the, both together work on the concept of the virtual and that therein one can see the one in the other. And so we're not going to reduce myth to ritual or ritual to myth, but we can recognise that they're both playing on the same thing. Okay, now in the process of getting that point across, there were certain things that we just didn't have time to consider, like the question of altered states of consciousness, of trance. We touched on it with Steve Friedson's work. We touched on it, but we didn't really go into it. The nature of trance and altered states of consciousness, the fact that there are so many ritual traditions that play upon this relationship of the altered states of consciousness. And around that, we have critical characters like spirit mediums, trance specialists, shamans. And we didn't have any time to think about those sorts of beings and those sorts of people. We could have done a whole extra week on altered states of consciousness in ritual. But hopefully, by thinking about the nature of the virtual, that we can think then about altered states of consciousness and why altered states of consciousness are so central in so many ritual practices because they're playing upon ritual virtuality. We didn't talk about ritual violence, why there's so much violence in ritual. We touched on it in relation to initiation, but we could have gone on much more. We could have talked a lot more about animal sacrifice and the nature of violence and how sacrifice might be acting to suppress human violence or human aggression or promote human violence, human aggression. We didn't talk about that. I wish we could have. We didn't talk about pilgrimage as a form of ritual practice, hugely important form of ritual practice that goes on all the time. And in, in fact, one can see it in contemporary forms of practice like tourism or dark tourism, so-called, where you might go as a tourist to a place like Auschwitz and you can hear people talk about their visits to Auschwitz or Hiroshima as indeed ritual activities. And then finally, we didn't really talk about state rituals, nationalistic rituals, national festivals, cultural festivals, the celebration of cultural heritage festivals, etc., etc. We could have done much more about that. And then finally, there were so many other approaches to myth that we could have looked at. Other psychoanalytic approaches, for example, other ideas of the unconscious, other ways of doing structuralist analysis of myth. Uh, feminist critiques of structuralist analysis of myth. These were all topics that, sure, if this was a unit that ran for a year, we could begin to explore. I stress, begin to explore. But boy, we didn't have time. I'm sorry. Now, finally, 
And my last remarks, what then about an anthropology of religion? I said at the beginning of this unit that I wanted to make a case for the anthropology of myth and ritual as not being an anthropology of religion. And you might, many of you who are doing the religious studies major, might turn around and say, bloody ripped off. Did this unit on myth and ritual as part of my major in religious studies and the bloody unit chair said, oh yeah, it's not about religion. It's all about religion, but it's not about religion. Typical damn anthropologist, let's challenge our taken for granted understandings of what we think religion is. And let's remove religion's ownership of the practices of myth and ritual. Because the thing is that religious and religions of the world are attempts to capture and monopolise myth and ritual. But they don't own it. Because myth and ritual is a form of human practice that is actually a human universal. Where religion is not necessarily a human universal. But myth and ritual are human universals. And they're so bloody powerful that the religions of the world are frequently tapping into myth and ritual in order to tap into the power of their virtuality. It is for that reason that this unit as an anthropology of myth and ritual is not an anthropology of religion. And in particular, it's an attempt to disabuse you of what you might understand religion to be. All these two approaches, which I'm wanting to separate anthropology, uh, I want to pick up um, namely the sociology of religion and also the philosophy of religion. Of the former, the sociology of religion typically is interested in the chaotic and disordered aspects of religious practice. It usually looks at different types of cult. Whether we're talking, uh, there's a fellow uh, there who's part of a, what's known as a cargo cult, uh, the John Frum movement, and then next to him is the religious founder of a Japanese a religion that uh, murdered people on the Japanese Tokyo underground. Uh, the next picture on the bottom left is a picture of dead bodies at Jonestown. And then uh, right we've got goose-stepping Nazi soldiers in the middle. But let's just put him aside for a second. In the sociology of religion, we tend to look at precisely religion as a kind of deviant behaviour. Or we look at deviant forms in relation to religion. And that, I think, stems in large part from the way in which sociology is a discipline that tends to study the breakdown of social systems and tries to understand how systems are breaking down and how systems are changing and how order can be reimposed. Now, some people would disagree with me, but I think that uh, a lot of sociology tends to be alarmist in the sense of trying always to find those little moments of breakdown and let's try and put it all back together again. Or here's something that we don't like, it's principles because they might be sexist or racist or something, and let's see about how we can change them. Anthropologists get accused of being basically conservative because they're, they're cautious always about jumping in to that they're going to change the world because they would start by saying, well, I'm not too sure that we know what it is that's going to be a better option. So let's think first and foremost about what it is we're talking about before we start thinking about how we might want to fix it and change it. I'm not being opposed to sociology, but I find that sociologists tend to be alarmists. In contrast, the philosophers tend to be elitists. The philosophers of religion tend to go looking for 
the Ongo Bongo philosophers of other religions. So if they're looking comparatively at world religions, they go looking for the philosophers amongst those world religions. The Confucius's, the Ramakrishnas or the Oshkos or whoever, but they tend to look for the thinker and his or her philosophical works. And so they're like, oh, it's, there's the Chinese Socrates or there's the Indian Plato. And so it goes. And they tend to focus very much on those areas. And that with that, they tend to focus on people who've written their ideas down. So you don't hear too many philosophers of religion going up to the New Guinea Highlands and talking to some local villager about sacrificing a pig. It's because like, well, where's the philosophy in that? And they would rather go and talk to Confucius, if indeed one could. So they'll go to a library and read him and then they'll compare his philosophical thought with some other text of philosophical thought. Again, I don't have a problem with that. But to me, that approach to the study of religion tends to narrow down uh, to those religions that close, most closely resemble the philosophical traditions of elsewhere, namely here. And so they tend to go and discover themselves. Now, for me, the sociologists running around, you know, being chicken lick and saying the sky's falling, the sky's falling, uh, and we're all doomed. Um, and the elitist philosophers saying, you know, take me to your leader. Um, it's all absolutely fine, but it's not what an anthropology of religion does. Yes, of course, there's an anthropology of religion. And of course, it can study doomsday cults and philosoph the philosophical beings and so on. It can do all of that, but it's different. And part of its being different is that it says, hang on, what do we mean by religion? What is religion? Oh, I think it's spirituality. Oh, really? Are you sure that's not a modern Western term by which you define your religion and then you want everybody else to fit into that box? As an anthropologist, I want to talk about human beings and that's all of them. So I don't know that spirituality is really going to capture my sense of the human rather than recapture a sense of myself. Oh, well, it's all about faith. It's all about belief. Is it? Oh, it's all about gods. Oh, really? How many? Well, there's only one, and then when there's lots of them, that's because they couldn't agree on its name. Maybe. Oh, it's all about good and evil. Oh, really? Is it all about good and evil? What do we understand by good and evil? What do we understand by the nature of morality? So an anthropologist is, in, and God, we're annoying. They won't let you sit with any little idea and hang on to it without saying, no, 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 no. Think comparatively about other people in the world and in the process, start challenging your taken for granted assumptions. Because if you do that, then you might begin to say, oh, hang on, behold, the human. And I'm just part of that. I'm not the sum total of humanity because if you want to be the sum total of humanity what you're saying is I'm afraid I can't do that Dave I'm not gonna open the door and let you back in you bloody human because I am humanity and then and it's like well hello hell uh, well, welcome to the world of the totalitarian um, who totalizes themselves as the world, as every human being. Anthropology is the discipline that says, no, hang on. <laughs> Be careful where you're going with that kind of a logic. 
and be very careful where you go in with that kind of a logic. So that's it. That's it for the unit. I'm sorry that this lecture has gone on over time, 20 minutes too long. Uh, I had a little bit to do, a little bit to say, um, and I had to, you know, get on my soapbox at the very end uh, or get back on my soapbox at the very end to make the case for uh, my discipline and also for what this unit has been about uh, as the anthropology of myth and ritual. And I can only say, you know, I hope you now have a sense of what myth and ritual are, at least according to Mad Rowan, um, and in the process that you've got a sense too of what anthropology is, if you've never done any anthropology before, and that you can say to yourselves, I can now take this into the rest of my studies or wherever it is I'm going next, and that I've learned a few things, and above all, uh, I saw a bloody good movie, and I now get the fuss, I hope, about that movie, and uh, and I had a good time. Okay. As you probably pick up, I have a good time uh, every time I teach this stuff. And so uh, I just, I, I hope you enjoyed coming along for the ride. Okay, I'm out of here and I'm in the last, got the seminars this week and then it's see you later guys. Okay.